The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Your words have been literally strong against me, says Yahweh. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Words are weighty. The Proverbs teach us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Words are weighty. Jesus says that we'll be judged for every idle word that comes out of our mouth. And that's probably one of the scariest verses in the Bible. The reason our words are weighty is because the things that come out of our mouth are a reflection of our heart. And that which comes out of our mouth reflects what we think about God and what we think about life. In our passage tonight, we see harsh words about God, hard words about God, words of disillusionment with God. And we also see that as those hard words about God are spoken, that they are like a contagion that spreads. Complaining against God is like that. Once we start to complain, it begins to spread like gangrene. Unbelief spreads as as God-belittling words are said. And as we become disillusioned with God and say hard things about God, it cuts the nerve of our service to God. But healthy, hearty, faith-filled words about God actually fuel our fear of the Lord and empower us to serve Him with gladness. And the fact is is that the Lord God of heaven hears both conversations. He hears both kinds of words. In our passage tonight, Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, there's a contrast between what I've called two fellowships. There's the fellowship of those who belittle God with harsh words of unbelief and do not serve Him. And then there's the fellowship of those who fear the Lord and esteem His name, and they serve Him. And God listens to the conversations of both fellowships and has something to say to both of them. We begin with verses 13 to 15, the fellowship of God-belittlers. The charge goes like this, your words have been strong against me. Uh, The King James puts it like this, your words have been stout against me. 
uh, New American Standard, your words have been arrogant against me. NIV and New King James, very well put, your words have been harsh against me. English Standard Version, your words have been hard against me. The New Living Translation, which isn't necessarily my favorite, does capture it well. You've said terrible things about me. And that's what's in view. That's the charge that God is bringing. There are those that have said strong words about God. That is hard words about God. Harsh words about God. Terrible words about God. Which really, at the end of the day, simply end up being arrogant words about God. And that is the charge. And what it does is it reminds us right away that we are not free to think let alone say hard things about God. Now, it's very popular today to say harsh things about God. It's very popular today to express or to vent your disappointment with God. Um, You can write a book and entitle that very thing and sell 250,000 copies. And in fact, if Job were alive today, his three friends would have been very different. Not better, but just different. And as Job began to vent against God, his friends would have not rebuked him as they did in the book of Job. Now, their counsel wasn't good, but at least they rebuked him for venting against God. But today, Job's counselors would say, that's right, Job, let it all out. But we're not free to think hard thoughts about God, let alone say hard words about God. There is a place for the kind of raw honesty that Naomi expresses at the end of Ruth chapter 1 where she returns to Bethlehem and her family wants to know why she's returned and she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That's a raw, honest statement. But the the kind of thing that Malachi is talking about is the cynical, disillusioned smear campaign that takes place in the name of being honest with God. And so God makes the charge, your words have been hard against me. You've said strong words against me. And of course, their retort, just like all the way through the book of Malachi, they come back with, what have we spoken against you? In other words, again, it's not asking what are the exact words that we've said, because if we're wrong, we'd like to be shown where we're wrong. These are words of defiant denial. When they say, what have we spoken against you? In essence, they're saying, we haven't said anything wrong about you. And notice throughout the whole book, every time there's a rebuke to the people, what do they do? They reply, they come back with a defensive, defiant response. God puts his finger on a sin. God puts his finger on a weakness. God puts his finger on something that needs to be identified. And without fail, throughout the book of Malachi, these people come back defensive and defiant. That is no way to respond to the God who loves us with an unchanging love, even when we're put into the midst of the refiner's fire. And yet I fear that many of us do respond in that very way. 
defiant and defensive. And so God, in order to make sure that they understand very clearly what the harsh, hard words are, begins to delineate them. You have said it is vain to serve God. That's the first thing that they began to say. In other words, the, um, the, the harsh words went something like this. You know, it is really useless to devote your life to serve God. There's nothing in it. Look at these servants of his. All they get is nothing. All all his servants get are heartaches and headaches. At the end of the day, it's not worth it. It is vain, it's futile, it's empty to serve God. And in fact, all of the so-called blessings that these servants talk about, it's all a charade. Look at their life. Their life is no easier. Their life is still filled with trial. Their life is still filled with pain. Their life is still filled with all of the ordinary stuff that wicked people deal with. In fact, at the end of the day, when you judge a wicked person according to a servant of God, it's the wicked person that seems to be better off. There's a uselessness in serving God. Why waste your life? Why waste the best years of your life? Why waste your fortune? Why waste your years? Why waste your energy serving God? It doesn't get you anything. The next hard word. Basically, there's no profit in obedience. And what profit is it that we've kept this charge? In other words, the idea is, you know what? We've obeyed God. We've... (laughs) We've done what he said, and you know what? At the end of the day, the bottom line is there was no cut in it for us. God has told us to do certain things. We've done those things. I mean, we've complied externally. This is, this is the way they put it. Oh, yeah, serve God, obey God. Yeah, been there, done that. And you know what? It doesn't work. There's no profit in it. In fact, all of these promises, all of these so-called blessings are a huge smokescreen. And what God does is he dangles them in front of his people. He never pays off. He never actually follows through on what he said to those who obey him. And so they just are obeying vainly, uselessly, without any profit whatsoever. Here they are living lives of self-denial, living lives of devotion, living lives of trying to obey. And look it, they don't get anything for it. The next hard word. Notice, and there's no profit in that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Now, this one is somewhat interesting because to walk in mourning before the Lord of hosts is another word for for what? To walk in mourning would be repentance. That's the idea. And, And so this gets even a little more audacious because what you have is a group of people saying, repentance, yeah, we know all about it. We, we've gone that route, we've mourned, we've done what we're supposed to do, we cried when we were supposed to cry, we confessed when we were supposed to confess repentance, yeah, been there, done that too. And in fact, we repented so good that we actually went down to Penny's, bought some sackcloth and took some ashes, threw it up in the air, walked around in sackcloth, mourned, cried over our sins, and you know what? We've complied with everything that God's told us to do. We've wept for our sins, we've repented, we've went around mourning, and you know what? we're not better off for it. 
we're really not better off for it. Now, these aren't the first people to say such a thing. Turn over to Psalm 73. You might want to keep Psalm 73 marked in your Bibles because we're going to revisit it a couple of times tonight. Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. It's a famous psalm. Notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. What the psalmist does in Psalm 73 is he says, now he starts off on on where he had come to. He starts off with his conclusion, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, So this is not his final conclusion. But he's telling us the process of how he got there. And he comes down into this particular section, 1 to 14. He's contrasting the wicked and the righteous. And he looks at the wicked and they're fat, which in the old days was a good thing. And their eyes are bulging and they've got enough money and there's no pain in their death and all of this. And and, and they're hip people, they're cool people, they're rich people, they are fun people, they are painless people. They don't go around with affliction and sackcloth and ashes. They go to parties all the time. And Asaph says, you know what? At the end of the day, I look at all of that and I look at all the reward that they get and all the fun that they have. And then I look at everything that it costs to be godly and to walk in God's ways. And this is what I've concluded. I have kept God's ways in vain. Absolutely useless for me to do this. Why? Because there's no reward to it. God doesn't take care of his people like he says he would. Here they are just giving their lives. Here they are saying that my my whole life is is consumed with a love to God that manifests itself in obedience. And, And the people in Malachi and Asaph had concluded, you know what? That's just a bunch of nonsense. The final indictment in Malachi 3 goes like this. This is absolutely horrible. So now, as a result of our grand investigation into serving God and obeying God and repenting, our grand conclusion is this. We call the arrogant blessed. And not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Here it is. Here's their conclusion. You know what? At the end of the day, the arrogant... No, who's, who's the arrogant? The arrogant, they are the ones that live for themselves. They are the ones that put themselves first. And, and, and you know what? They're the ones that get blessed. The top dogs are the ones that get blessed. The ones that devour everyone else, they're the ones that get blessed. The arrogant, the ones that trample on everybody, the ones that always have to be first, the ones that always have to assert themselves and be on top. You know what? They're the blessed ones. It's even worse. And the evildoers, they're the ones that are built up. They're the ones that acquire They're the ones that get the stuff of this life. They're the ones that reap the rewards. 
The evildoers, the people that just do what they want to do, live like they want to live, they're the ones that seem to, to, to get everything that they want. I mean, they, they get the SUVs and, and, and the boats and, and, and the toys and, and they get to all this stuff and they get all the vacations and all the free time and, and, and their life is just filled with leisure and pleasure and all of that. It's the wicked that are built up. They acquire the stuff and you know what they do? They continually put God to the test. How do they put God to the test? By continuing walking in their own ways, defying God's ways. And you know what happens to them time and time again? They escape. These are the guys that never get tickets. These are the guys that never get caught. And so here I've been raised from childhood to think that God knows everything and sees everything and he is a righteous God who will not let the wicked go unpunished. And you know what? I see wicked people all the time and they not only go unpunished, but they actually have a pretty nice life. They do what they want and the shoe never drops. They live the way they want and the hammer never falls. Well, it's what Asaph says too. Turn back to Psalm 73. Now this is, this is Asaph's process. He says, but as for me, notice verse 2, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Asaph was right there on the edge of falling into the despair of unbelief. That's the point. And notice, and this is why. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. They don't even get sick. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And there's no knowledge with the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked and are always at ease. And they've increased in wealth. Asaph's dilemma Malachi 3, the fellowship of the God-belittlers, here's their grand conclusion. You know what? God isn't fair. First of all, he doesn't treat me the way I ought to be treated. And he doesn't treat all the nasty people the way they ought to be treated. And so why do what he says? Why do what he says? Now, there are a few things in this, the first part of this text that we need to pay attention to. The first is this. God knows our words and our thoughts. God knows our words and our thoughts. These people that were saying these things, these people who were expressing these things, these people who were venting, there's, there's, there's something that, that, that they tend to forget at some point in the process, and that is that God himself listens to the conversations. And the conversations are not lost with God. 
He notices them. He pays attention to them. He listens to the words. He understands the attitudes and thoughts and intentions of the heart. He hears the hard words that are spoken against him. And so, although it may look like God doesn't care, and although it may look like you're going to get away with talking like this and and living like this, God heard it. God sees it. By the way, that is the very reality that will rescue Asaph from the despair of unbelief. What I started to consider was their end, and God knows everything. The second thing that manifests itself here is that our words have consequences. Notice, these people are saying these things to each other. They become sounding boards of unbelief with each other. Remember, our words always have consequences. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary says, very pointedly, unguarded conversation undermines the morale. Unguarded conversation undermines the morale. And so... Words like that doesn't pay to serve God. God is stingy. God doesn't do what he says he's going to do. God is mean. God is nasty. God isn't fair. And you start saying those words, and those words take root in people's hearts and people's minds and begin to spread. And there's one thing that Asaph teaches us in Psalm 73 that we need to pay very close attention to. In verse 15, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible actually translates it very well. He says, after I've kept my way in vain, all of that, he says in verse 15, if I had decided to say these things out loud, I would have betrayed the generation of your people. In other words, at least Asaph had the sense as he was struggling with the dilemma, as he was wrestling with this this, uh, seemingly uh, uh, irreconcilable tension in his theology between who God is and what he does and how he treats the righteous and how he treats the wicked. At least he had the sense to say, at least I didn't say these things out loud because if I would have said these things out loud, I would have betrayed the children of your generation. There are, let's put it this way, if you have hard thoughts about God, keep them to yourself. Keep them to yourself. Because they will spread. They will spread. And a person who may have been having a a spark of struggle with with hard thoughts about God, all of a sudden, all they need to do is hear those words, and and it gives them now a new liberty and freedom and release to start saying even harder things about God. The third thing that we see in this is that harsh, hard thoughts about God lead to ungodly words and conclusions about God and life. And that'll impact the way you live. That'll impact the way you live. The way you think about God, the way you talk about God, will inevitably impact the way you live. Hard thoughts about God, ungodly words about God, will inevitably lead to a life of absolute disregard for the things of God. So be careful what you think about God. Be careful. 
regardless of what is popular among evangelical Christianity today, it is not safe, nor is it right to entertain hard words about God. That's the fellowship of the God-belittlers. Now let's take a look at the fellowship of the God-fearers. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. I love that. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. And so, you can think of it like this. Verses 13 to 15, you've got all this hard, harsh, strong, arrogant words being spoken about God. People are feeding on each other's um, discontentment and animosity with God. And then on the other side of town, or the other side of the sanctuary... There are other conversations going on too. And these aren't the hard, harsh words about God that are being spoken of. These are people who fear God and they're speaking to each other in the fear of the Lord. And so you go from words that are absolutely demeaning and wrong-headed and false notions about God. Then you go to this other fellowship and you've got people who are speaking out of the fear of God. And, and remember this morning in Sunday school, we looked, what's the fear of God? Deuteronomy ten twelve. it is to love God. To obey God, to walk with God, and to worship God. And so here are people who, out of the abundance of their heart, in love to God, worship God, obedience to God, humbled before his own holiness, having an acknowledgement of who God is and who we are. By the way, if you want to think about the fear of the Lord, you can always put it in those terms, a recognition of who God is and who we are. If a person is saying hard words about God, there's no fear of God in their sight. Because they've started to do this. But when the fear of the Lord is in our hearts, God is holy, God is majestic, God is high and lifted up, and we are humbled before Him. And their speech, edifying words about God to each other. They're speaking to each other about the things of God, and they're building each other up. Remember, life and death are in the power of the tongue. That's what the Proverbs teach us. The words that we say are powerful words, and they can be words of death and destruction, or they can be words of health and life. The fellowship of God-belittlers just speaks words of destruction because they're not only tarnishing God's reputation with each other, but they're also just tearing each other down. The fellowship of God-fearers are speaking words of life and health, God-centered words, words that build up and strengthen and magnify God. And so here's the question before we move on. What kind of words do we speak? What kind of words do we speak? Do we speak the kind of words that exalt God and build up people? Or do we speak words that belittle God? And and, and even though it seems like we're having such a great time of fellowship, feeding on each other's discontent, what's happening is that we're mutually destroying each other. What, What kind of words come out of your mouth? Remember... God hears the conversations. 
God hears the conversations. You see it right in the middle of verse 16. Look at that. And the Lord gave attention and he heard it. And so here are these God-fearers who are speaking to each other. And God pays attention and, and, and hears them. It's, it's, it's as if he hears his name being esteemed. He hears his name being feared. He hears brothers and sisters building each other up. And he pays attention and draws near to that conversation. He gravitates towards that conversation as that which is pleasing in his sight. He is the unseen listener to every conversation. Those that fear his name, those that honor or esteem his name, were put into a book of remembrance. Now, what is it to esteem the name of the Lord? One of my favorite Old Testament scholars is Walt Kaiser. And he says, what these believers were doing was setting their value on or esteeming as the highest prize the name of the Lord. God's name comprises his person, his qualities, his doctrine, and his ethical and moral standards. These were the things the believers judged to be their highest and most prized possessions. If you asked any of these God-fearers what they judged to be their wealth, property, or greatest asset, they would have pointed to the name of the Lord and all that it stands for. God says, as those conversations were going on, as my name was being esteemed, as my name was being honored and valued by these God-fearers, as they fellowshiped with each other, then God says, what I did is I took a book of remembrance. I wrote the name in it. God is so good to us to give us earthy, tangible pictures that we can understand. I mean, he he could have expressed this particular truth in an esoteric way that was outside of our ability to comprehend. But he says, you know know what I did? I took a book. Does God need a book? No. And I wrote their names down. Does God need to write the names down? Book of Remembrance. It's like a things to do list. And so he starts to write down. Well, here's the omniscient God with inexhaustible knowledge of all things past, present, future, possible, and real. And, and he says, I liked what I heard. You know what I did? I took a book and I wrote their names in this book that I call the Book of Remembrance. In the ancient world, oftentimes kings would keep records. There's no record of one of these books being called a book of remembrance, but there is an example. You might remember when Ahasuerus uh, couldn't sleep one night, he had one of his servants in the book of Esther go and get a book chronicling the history of the people. And so they come back, and you know what he starts to read? He starts to read about the deeds of Mordecai. His name got recorded with his deeds so that it would not be forgotten. God says, in essence, that's what I do. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to forget the way you value my name. I'm not going to forget the way that you esteem me. I'm not going to forget the way that you fear me. Remember what he says to those uh, beleaguered saints in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. God has not forgotten your works so as to reward them. Psalms tell us he won't forget our tears. Keeps our tears in a bottle. 
He won't forget our works. And he will not forget those God-honoring, edifying conversations of life. He will not forget when we value his name. He will not forget when we esteem him. He will not forget when we walk in the fear of the Lord. He will not forget our commitment. He will not forget how we've helped others walk in the fear of the Lord. He says, your name's in the book of remembrance. I see it. I know it. Now, you know what? Those turkeys across town, what they think is, I can't remember anything. But I've got a book. I've got a book. And then verse 17, this is Yahweh actually speaks to this fellowship. And he says in verse 17, They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And so contrast, contrast what he says to those with their hard words with what he says to those who are speaking God-honoring words. You know what he says about them? They're going to be mine. Now notice, the imperfect tense in Hebrew indicates future, okay? In in Hebrew, you've got two tenses. You've got perfect and imperfect. The perfect tense is the tense of completion. The imperfect is the tense of incompletion, which often means future. They, that's why we translate it like this, they shall be mine. Now, is there a sense in which they're already his? Yeah, of course. They're already his. They they belong to him. They belong to his covenant people. But what is he doing? He's actually projecting a a day in the future. A day in the future whereby he says, I'm going to take them as my own possession. Now, by the way, this is Exodus language. God said that he would make a people for his own possession, Exodus chapter 19. That gets translated, by the way, carried over into the New Testament so that we are a people for his own possession. Uh, Ephesians 1.14, Titus 2.14. We are a people of God's own possession. We are his by covenant. We are his by his unchanging love. We are his by adoption. We are his in his family. We're his by new birth. But there's coming a day in which he will actually vindicate and declare to everyone, they're mine. Okay, so now the only, the only reason people think you belong to God is because you tell them. But there's coming a day when God will tell them. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. He's mine. She's mine. They're my possession. He goes on, and, 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 and this is why we know it's future. On that day that I prepare my own possession. You want to know how to put this in a different way? Eschatology matters. Having a theology of the future matters. This is a future reality that God is talking about. And he says, you know what? There's going to be payday someday. The the reality is, as I'm going to come back, the reality is, is there's going to be retribution. And the fact is, is that these people are my own and I am preparing them for that day. And so when payday does come, you want to make sure that your name is in the book of remembrance because you want to belong to him. Notice again the future tense, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Spared judgment, spared as a son. 
in that great separation, in the great assize, in the great conflagration, in the day of judgment, God spares his own children. They're mine. They are in the refuge and safety of Jesus Christ. I will spare them as a faithful son who has served me. I will treat them as if they are perfectly righteous in my son, and they will be spared all of the judgment. And then the reality comes. An eternal state. An eternal state, an unchangeable eternal state, a fixed eternal state, fixed eternal realities, new heaven, new earth, or the lake of fire. Those are the only two realities that will exist throughout eternity. You know what God is telling these people who who won't give in to the, you know, God is really stingy and nasty and not fair, and and I hate serving Him, and I'm not going to do it anymore. And He tells those that say, God is good. God does good. God has never wronged me once. Yeah, there's been hardships, but He's been faithful all along. What He says is, you remember, you remember, judgment day is coming. And it will all be worth it at the great white throne. Eschatology matters. You may not get everything that you think you got coming to you in this life. Read the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. They all died without receiving what was promised. Why? So that they would not be made perfect apart from us. And so God's servants, at times it does look like they're they're not treated as well as they should be since they're devoting their whole life. But but God says, you know what, you're missing the whole point. And, And that's actually what saves Asaph from that despair. He says, then you know what I did? I considered their end. And I realized that they're slated for judgment. And so whatever little bit of fatness and happiness they have in this life, that's the only heaven they're going to know. And for me, whatever suffering, whatever affliction, whatever hardship I know in this life, this is the only hell I'm going to know. And eternity will make it all right. Eternity will make it all right. Verse 18, the great divide. God distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, the just and the unjust. He says, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Those of you that want to blur all the distinctions and say, you know, it pays to be wicked. I mean, how much or so much for their hard words of verse 15, right? So now we call the arrogant blessed and the doers of wickedness are built up. And God says, you know what? I'm distinguishing. You should distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And what distinguishes the righteous from the wicked? Notice this between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. What distinguishes the righteous from the wicked? Mere words? No. Mere profession? No. The life. Service to God. That's what distinguishes the righteous from the wicked. Now, the one who serves him is righteous. The one who does not serve him is wicked. Now, you need to understand this. This is so important. You don't serve God in order to become righteous. We serve God because we've been declared righteous in Jesus. And then we concretely demonstrate that righteousness 
in our service to him. You can't become righteous by serving, but if you are righteous, you will serve. And so the one who turns to the Lord, the Lord declares him righteous. And the one who is declared righteous will demonstrate that righteousness by service to God. And thereby God can say, here's here's the great distinction among men. The righteous and the wicked. The righteous are those who serve me. The wicked are those who do not serve me. And so judgment does come on those who serve the Lord. Notice very clearly there's going to be a distinction made between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God takes notice. There's that book of remembrance and God judges him. So much for the complaint of verse 14. Doesn't pay to serve God. Keith Green used to sing a song. The sheeps, the sheep, the sheeps, the sheep units, and the goats. And um, it's actually a very moving song. And it's one of my favorites. And uh, a couple years ago on vacation, I was playing Keith Green over and over again. And every time we get to that song, the kids would ask me to play it again. It's very moving. And it's basically about Matthew 25 and the, and the judgment between the sheep and the goats. And he gets down to the end and he says something that, that, that always bothered me. But if you think about it, it, it is true. The only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do. That's not to say that salvation comes by works. But what it does say is that those who are saved demonstrate that salvation in a way that will be on display on judgment day. You look at every single judgment passage in the scriptures and you know what? There's not a single judgment passage that says I'm going to judge a person by the words that he has said regarding his faith. Look at every judgment passage and do you know what is in view in every judgment passage? The deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5, Romans chapter 14, Revelation chapter 20, you name it. Why? Because works are the demonstration of the faith. And that's why God says, I can distinguish, I can distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, wicked by distinguishing those who serve me and those who don't. And so as we enter into a new year in just a few hours... Let's be those that live in the fear of the Lord and let that fear of the Lord govern our speech. Let us esteem God's name with each other. Let's be careful about the words that we say to each other. There are times where we need to talk about things that are difficult. There are times that we need to say things that are difficult. There are times where where the kind of speech that we need to use needs to be direct with each other. But, But... You can still do that in a God-honoring way. Watch over your heart. Watch over your mouth. Don't be in the fellowship of the God-belittlers whose whose God-belittling talk and and hard words about God spreads like gangrene. But be among those that, that, that live in the sphere of the Lord and who esteem God's name, value God's name by the words that they say. And let's serve the Lord this year with fear and gladness knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Does service to the Lord sometimes seem fruitless? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Sometimes in serving the Lord, there are tears. A lot of times there are tears. 
Sometimes in serving the Lord, there's a sense of disappointment, a sense of failure. If I were to determine whether or not I should stay in the ministry by the fruit of the preaching, I'd have given up a long time ago. But it is not useless to serve God. It is not useless to devote your life to serving God. Young people, you need to listen to that. The devil will tell you, don't give God your best years. The devil will tell you, don't give God the best of your years, the best of your strength, the best of your talents, the best of your abilities. Give him the leftovers. And God says, no, you serve me with everything that you are. And it is not useless to devote your life to serving Jesus Christ. It is not a wasted life to serve Christ. In fact, the only way to waste your life is not to serve Christ. And remember, the last day, the last day, will be the ultimate exposition of how excellent a life of service to God really is. One of these days, we'll all be standing before the throne of God. One of these days, we'll give an account. One of these days... All of the little things will matter. I was watching one of my favorite movies while Ariel was gone. I felt like I needed a good testosterone boost, so I started to watch The Gladiator. And General Maximus says to his men as they're about to engage in battle, men, remember what you do in this life will have effect for eternity. And it's true. It's true. God keeps really good records. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these ancient 2,500-year-old words that are alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, may we embrace what you have for us, and may we watch our speech. Father, we pray that we would find ourselves in the fellowship of those who fear you and esteem your name. And Father, we pray for those of us tonight who may feel weary in serving you and may feel weary in well-doing. Father, we pray that even tonight you would remind us that it is not useless. It is not vain. There is coming a day. And Father, may we live in light of it, especially when we find our own hearts discouraged. May we live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.